Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my guest is Peter Edge. He is the former head of training for Merseyside Police, and he's a lost knowledge detective. Peter, welcome. Well, well, thanks very much, and uh, it's it's great to be here, Marcus. Excellent. Peter, could you give 60 to 90 seconds on your background, please? Right. Well, it's a, it's a strange one. I started life aiming to be a dentist, strangely enough, straight from school, but um, fell out with dentistry after about a year and joined Merseyside Police, uh, where I spent 30 years going through the respective ranks. Bit of a snakes and ladders um, career, you might say. But yeah, finished as a superintendent. Did uh, a lot of stuff, senior investigating officer, head of training, as you've mentioned, various other roles. But after 30 years, enough was enough. And I left, I started my own business uh, in the hospitality industry. I worked for the NHS. I've been a consultant on the NATO summit. And about five or six years ago, I started getting really interested in this concept of, of lost knowledge. I'm a person who hates waste of any sort of description. And that's really what prompted me to get into it. So, do you have it. a very strong clean your plate script? Absolutely. I, I grew up in a big, big Catholic family. And, um, you know, it was a common theme that my mum would say, you know, there's children starving in Africa. If you don't eat that, you won't get your put in. Yeah. Biafra, uh, Cambodia. All of that sort of stuff. That. Was very um, I remember well. offering to package it and post it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that didn't go down well with my mum either. No, no. This was pre-beating children being an issue. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I remember yeah. the occasional clip across the year for that. Yeah, well, I, I was educated by the Christian Brothers, so... so oh, you too? Yeah, child brutality oh, was... Yeah. Um, so lieutenants. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Prior Park. Um, right. and, um, but yeah, they were... Yeah, n- never has an organisation been, been less appropriate than the Christian Brothers. It had a silent un at the beginning of Christian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were largely pretty good, and, and I came out with a good education. But uh, yeah, they weren't they weren't shy about um, the use of force. Put it that way. <laughs> I don't think I used as much force. Well, so, in- so you went from putting teeth back in to knocking them out. Clearly driven by your early childhood. So tell me this: I mean, why should anyone give a damn about lost knowledge? Oh, why? Well, if you think, just think about yourself. Think about me. Think about the amount of stuff that you have in your head, the amount of stuff that makes you great at what you do. And okay, not everybody's going to be great at what they do, but there are plenty of people out there who are. And what happens to it? What happens to it when you move on, when you get a new job, when, God forbid, you get hit by a bus? All of that knowledge just disappears. And it's a hill you've got to climb again and again and again to retrieve it. That's if it can ever be retrieved in the first place. How can an organisation capture all that knowledge? I mean, I've forgotten more than I've ever known. And I try and remember stuff through writing it down and through teaching. But I I remember working with clients from 15, 18 years ago, and they tell me about stuff that I taught them that I've forgotten because I haven't used it for 15 years. That's, that's a very good point, not, not used it for 15 years. But I don't think there's, there's, there's an expectation, and, and it certainly wouldn't be realistic to expect organisations and businesses to capture every bit of knowledge. But every bit of knowledge isn't at risk. This, for me, is, is the key point about all of this, is that you need to prioritise, and you prioritise by doing an informed risk assessment of your vulnerability to, to the threat of lost knowledge. 
And that's, you know, that's just simply impact via likelihood. How likely is it going to happen? And how bad is it going to be? How much damage is it going to do us? Not everybody, you know, out of a thousand employees, say, in an organization, maybe only 10 are the people who are the people that you desperately need to make sure you capture their knowledge. They're the 10 people who really make a difference. And this this is what, what I ask organizations to do is to take a, a, a long, hard look at themselves, to, to profile their organization and what they do, and identify the people who really make a difference. Who are the people who consistently perform better than anybody else? Who are the go-to people in a crisis? Who are the people who have the great contacts? Who are the people who, who everybody respects and who, if they left tomorrow without any notice, would really threaten the future of your business? And we've all probably seen those people. Really interestingly enough, this has a very close parallel with something Liz Wiseman and Greg McEwen write about in their book, Multipliers. One of the actions that multipliers take on on a regular basis is identifying what people do with ease that other people struggle with. Yeah. Identifying and recognizing those people for being able to do that and having them play to that strength or that talent. And often, in my experience, people who have that magical talent, that magical capability, don't know how. And when you raise it with them, they're almost surprised that you did because they think it's the most natural thing in the world. Is yeah. this the kind of thing that you're talking about in terms of capture? I think that's certainly certainly an element of it. And it's interesting that you uh, you use the word magic because that's, that's a word that I, I often use. And it hints at the sort of the, the tacit nature of the knowledge that we're talking about that is you know, not easily codified. It's not easily written down. And again, some people just don't realize that they have it. And that's part of the process for me. Part of the process is in actually recognizing those people. And I, I, I don't mean recognizing that people as in identifying them. I'm saying recognition in terms of saying to that individual who has got that magic, do you know you've got the magic? Mm. And we want to capture it. We know how much that impacts on our organization and how much the loss of it would damage us. So you're really important to what we do. We need to capture that. How are best are we going to do that? A really good indicator is that someone gets um, constantly called upon to do that thing. And yeah. they kind of wonder why. If someone's good at enlisting ideas from a group of people where ordinarily they'd be resistant. They're often the one that's brought up to facilitate from the front. If they are good at the schmooze, they're the ones that get put front and center where there's an important conversation to be had with someone senior. So always keep an eye out for people who seem to have this natural, unnatural talent for doing something that yeah. other people really struggle with yeah. and then capture how they do it. So how does one go about capturing uh, how they do it and what they know? Well, well, that's the trick. And that's the very tricky part about all of this because, you know, no matter how smart your systems are, content doesn't know who you are or understand your contextual needs in the way that a colleague can. And it doesn't know how to tune itself 
to your needs and current knowledge level in the way that, for instance, a mentor can. And, and that's why mentoring is, is, is hugely important in, in this apprenticeships, having someone side by side, buddying up, recognizing that it is going to be really difficult to catch. And it's probably going to be the smallest nuances in behavior and process that are going to be the, 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 the things that really, really make the difference. And you only capture that by either telling the person, as we said before, who doesn't recognize that they've got the magic, yeah, you have got the magic. You're our go-to person every time for this need, that need, in a crisis. Do you know why? What is it that you do that makes you great? We think it's this. What do you think it is? And people, are, you know, some, some people are shy about coming forward with that sort of stuff. Some people, as we said before, just don't know that they've got the magic and have to be told. But inevitably, and I've seen this so many times, they are so happy, so made up with themselves when someone, particularly a, you know, a, a supervisor or a manager says, you know what, you're special, mate. You're really, really important to our, to our organisation. How do you do it? Give me some contexts um, where identifying lost knowledge has really made a difference, where it's been a multiplier and accelerator. There are examples out there, left, right and centre. You know, the classic example with, with Boeing where they were having a, a huge redundancy project and essentially they threw the baby out with the bathwater, had to cancel production for like three or four weeks, ended up threatening the production line for 737s and 747s until they, they managed to, to, to turn it around. So the, the amount of money, productivity, everything else that they lost was immense. But it isn't just Boeing, Grumman, Northrop, NASA, where the examples are very clear and very well documented. And one of the best examples I, I can think of is in a, a friend of mine's business who identified that his office manager, and this is a financial services business, you know, comparatively small, 20 to 30 employees, a couple of million pounds turnover, no doubt, identifies that his office manager is due to retire in about 18 months' time. So he does a number of things. First of all, he recruits someone and shadows the office manager to empty them out of everything because he's got all the corporate history, all the contacts, all the journey. He's, he's, he's traveled. And he did that, had them working side by side for up to 12 months. And then this guy sailed off into the sunset, happy in his retirement. But what he also did was that he facilitated a relationship post-retirement relationship with the business and an agreement to come back if necessary. And that brought dividends only recently because someone tried to buy out the company. And the questions that they were asking as part of their due diligence to fulfill their, their obligations in, in terms of the acquisition couldn't be answered even after this guy had um, shadowed someone for 12 months. But because the relationship had been nurtured and left and identified for future benefit, they were able to ring him up and say, listen, we've got this issue. You know, we spoke about this. Are you still prepared to come back on maybe a consultancy basis? And blah, blah, blah. And he is now doing all of that work. And that will facilitate, you know, a huge takeover uh, acquisition, which is going to make everybody an awful lot of money. This again then speaks to another 
element of the owner's planning process, which I think is twofold. One is that you need to encourage people to go when they are ready to go and wave them off with love and maintain a strong alumni network. And if you do those two things, that goodwill and that knowledge remains accessible. But I think far too often when someone leaves, they, it's like they died. Um, I, I remember leaving an organization and essentially the day after I left, it was like I'd gone into purgatory. Yeah. And it was really bizarre. I, you know, I just got on with my life, but the cutoff was palpable. Oh, yeah. I, I remember, you know, I've, there are people close to me, family people close to me, who have been exited from an organisation in such a brutal way. As in, hi, if you just pop upstairs for a minute, pop upstairs, by the time you pop back downstairs, there's two security guards standing by your desk, the contents of your desk are in a cardboard box, and you march to the front door and wave bye-bye. Well, that, you know, okay, maybe maybe in, in the context of what we're talking about, they weren't the most valuable person in the organisation. I don't know. But you can bet one thing, that the day after, there's no way they're going to be looking positively at any requests from their old organisation to, to, to help. But, but you're absolutely right. For many people, and, and the way I sum this up sometimes is to say, you don't tell someone that you still love them when they're halfway out the door and they've got a suitcase packed. Because mm -hmm. you know what? They're never going to come back. But that is the classic organisational business way of doing this, isn't it? Oh, you're going. Oh, will you do an exit interview before you go? Mm, it's, it's never going to work, is it? You know, an exit to... And this, this goes to, to one of the questions that, that, that I often ask is, you know, do you really understand why people stay in your organisation and why people go? And unless you do know that, and unless you start asking that question well before they disappear out the front door, then, then you, 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 that's a real blind spot for you. This raises another really interesting area of discovery, which is around the entire appraisal process. I've yet to find anyone who thinks that the appraisal process is either unbiased or noise-free. And as a result, no one seems to like it. The managers don't, the employees don't. And I think there is a huge gulf between knowing someone can do a job and knowing them as a human being. And that is often a massive differentiator between a great manager and an average manager. And by average, I mean crap. So I'm really curious about the people side of what you're talking about, because it seems to me that that's fundamental to retaining and capturing lost knowledge. It, it is absolutely. And I, I mean, I'm really glad you mentioned it, because, again, one of the things I wrote a, a bit of a paper about this on LinkedIn some time ago, and I think I called it Re Reward and Recognition, the Organisational Selfie. <laughs> it's too often. It's a, it's a tick in the box. So, you know, Mark has come in at six months or 12 months, and uh, yet yeah, you've hit your goals. Uh, any training courses you needed, you know, five, 10 minutes and you're out the door. And there's a nice little paper file or a nice little IT file that, that gets logged in your general folder. And, you know, our, our responsibility, our 
our obligation to do uh, an appraisal, a performance review has been fulfilled. But for me, recognition goes back to what I first started talking about. It's recognizing the value that the person brings to the organization and exploring that. So rather than just recognition being, here you are, you've done a great job, here's, um, here's a bonus or here's a, you know, a nice certificate to say that you know, you've been top of sales or productivity or whatever it is for the last six months, it needs to work the other way. For me, the appraisal process is an opportunity for the organization to learn from that individual who is being appraised what it is that they do, how they bring that value that magic that we were talked about before, the X factor, how they bring that to the benefit of the organization. If the organization, if the manager doesn't recognize that beforehand, they're never going to be able to draw it out of them. One of the things that I do when onboarding a new hire is four weeks in, I have the new hire appraise the onboarding process and give us raw, unfiltered feedback with the protection that they know that they will not be punished for telling the truth and the permission to say whatever they need to. And what's really interesting about that is just how much you can learn. But the danger is that many organizations have people in them in senior positions who are very brittle. They have a finite mindset where they play to win or not to lose. They are always looking at a shrinking pie and trying to take a bigger piece instead of having a a growth mindset, an infinite gameplay where the objective is to keep the game going and make the pie bigger for everybody. And I, I suspect a lot of knowledge is lost because of culture, the way and who you recruit and the values around uh, clear, open, honest, vulnerable communication. 100%. Absolutely 100%. You asked me a a question before we did this, which was um, about questions that organizations perhaps should ask and don't. And one of the biggest questions is, are our values, policies, and procedures making us vulnerable to knowledge loss? And Exactly. What what is the value of the organization? Does it have integrity? Does it share knowledge? Does it encourage knowledge? Does it recognize it at all in the first place? And again, I'll come back to that word recognition. You've got to know why you're being successful. And you've got to know what makes up that success. And if, if that's an individual, if that's a special knowledge, if that's an area of work that contributes significantly to the overall success of your organization, then you need to know it. You know, I, I, I see examples of this all over the place. I was out, again, just completely off the cuff, out walking with a friend of mine the other day, and he works in manufacturing in the electrical industry. And they produce very specialist wiring for the space industry. It's a process which is, it's not ancient, but, it, it, but it, it's, it's certainly a long-established process that isn't, necessarily mechanized as, as much as it could be for, for one reason or another. And they've got one guy doing it. Yeah. He's been with the organization 40 years. Not only is he the only person that can make these particular braided space safe wires, but he's the only guy who can 
write a um, a commissioning report from is the only guy who can build the tender around everything about it and it's a huge part of their business if he falls over tomorrow you know 50% of their business could be impacted and you know who can take a knock like that in this day and age when margins are so small everything else and and it's it's about recognizing that sort of thing as well recognizing the impact on the organization that loss is going to have this again feeds into another fundamental belief that i have which is success in the future will be determined by your ability to collaborate and i think very often what happens and you know this is a hangover for the last 300 years where we've now become more and more and more specialized. But what I see is that generalists tend to come up with far more creative solutions than specialists, except in areas where there are very clearly defined rules. So if you want to learn chess, it makes sense to learn to do that young so that you understand the millions and millions of permutations. But where I look at companies that are really thriving and the companies that I predict will be successful in the future are ones that have diverse teams. And diversity is not just gender and race. It's ethnic backgrounds, it's international, it's educational levels, it's life experience those are the types of companies that will come up with very creative solutions. And particularly now that we're entering what I consider to be a renaissance in the post-COVID era. You look at every plague that we've ever had that's tended to create a, a renaissance. And we are, we're seeing it already with many, many organizations being incredibly creative and collaborative and they're decoupling the value chains, supply chains. So diversity, I think, is one thing. The other is to have multiple people involved in solving problems and having a diverse range of perspectives, including ones you disagree with vehemently. Because what I've seen time and time again is this echo chamber effect where we begin to believe our own rhetoric. And as a result, we end up, and yeah, 9-11 was a classic example. You know, the CIA had one Farsi speaker and no Arabic speakers paying attention to bin Laden. Bit crazy. And so when he was spouting poetry, they thought he was just some you know, wacko cleric instead of it being the highest form of Islamic rhetoric. So they pretty much ignored Al-Qaeda. And you, you see this time and time and time again, companies forgetting that unless they change, unless they evolve, unless they have diverse opinion, they'll just get eaten up by their own inertia. Yeah. And that's what I mean when, when I say about organizations having policies and processes and values which don't support knowledge management or, or encourage knowledge loss. And again, so many big companies are working in, in silos. You know, they're structured in silos. And of course, if they're structured in silos, then the, the specialist knowledge that exists is siloed as well. And there is no cross-fertilization, no transformation. You listen, I'm, I'm sure you've read Ricardo Semler's book, Maverick, about you know this, the Semco Corporation. I know it's, it's quite dated now, but it's 
it's all in. It's exactly what you're saying there. It's about, you know, sharing the job, retraining people doing other people's jobs so that the, the, the actual knowledge that is so tight, so specific, so individual is expanded. And in its expansion and therefore collaboration, it is enriched. It's enriched by that diversity that you, you, you talk about there. And to, to build on that, when someone joins a company, it makes a lot of sense for them to work in and experience what it's like to work in other departments uh, that are likely to be affected or will affect them. So I did a load of work over the last few years in a hotel group. And when so- new salespeople came on, we got them to sit in work with housekeeping for a week, with the front desk, with food and beverage, and with the events company, the events team. And as a result, we also got them to sit in on each other's meetings at least once a month. Someone from the team would be involved in the sales meeting and they would then be involved in the marketing and housekeeping and so on. And what it meant was that there was much less of a disconnect each time the customer got passed from one department to the other. Because again, I think far too few organizations start and end with the customer. And as a result of that, they become this forgotten afterthought. And human beings are not really designed for the pin factory that Adam Smith uh, designed. You know, someone doesn't hammer out a head and someone doesn't hammer out the wire and then sharpen the end. From the customer's perspective, it's all the same company. And unless customer success is involved early in the sales conversation, then chances are you will sell them something that you can't probably, or you may not be able to deliver on, or it'll be difficult or expensive to deliver on. Marketing needs to speak to the customer. And this knowledge needs to be shared. Because I agree that lost knowledge is an absolute travesty, but trapped knowledge is just as huge a problem. And if you don't break that down within an organization, then you end up wasting an awful lot of time in politics, in blame, in mistakes, in duplication. So what advice would you give to leaders? Because I I suspect a lot of them think that lost knowledge is really only lost at the has an effect at the top of the organization. Primarily the the message I give them is that you know knowledge management rather than you know the, the, the concept of lost knowledge, but you know you only lose knowledge if you don't have a knowledge management system or a knowledge management strategy that's in place. But knowledge management needs to focus on high value knowledge, which is not the same as top level knowledge. So my advice to organizations is, is to is to look at themselves and establish where the high value knowledge is. And that's Again, it's, it, it, I, I use the term profile. I've profiled people as, as a senior investigating officer. I've profiled murderers and robbers and rapists. And it's, it doesn't do the detective work for you. It doesn't get the detection, but it enriches the whole picture. And it, it, it provides you more and more data to analyze. And it allows you to focus in on the areas of, of highest risk. In terms of leaders in organizations, again, I'll go back to that thing. Are your values making you vulnerable to, to the prospect of knowledge loss? So while you were talking there, I was, I was thinking back, I, I listened to one of your previous 
guests, Max Cates, and, and he was talking about, I think, a, a pharmacological industry he was working in at the time. And the sales force that he went to were, had, had lost sight of their values and, and their purpose. And their purpose was to make people better. But they understood their purpose at the time, to sell more drugs. And it's not the same thing. The ultimate perversion of that was an investment bank running a webinar. And the title of the webinar is, Is Curing People a Good Business Model? <laughs> right, yeah. Now, if that isn't the ultimate per- perversion of the values of trying to help make people better. Exactly. It's just obscene. And I think part of the problem here is the emphasis and the hegemony of finance over everything else. You hear organizations claiming that people are their greatest asset, but why do they appear on the cost side of the balance sheet? They're not the most important asset for the finance department because the only thing they care about really is the numbers. But the irony is that if you don't treat your people incredibly well and you don't make them feel valued and special and you don't develop them, then what you end up with is unhappy customers. And there was a study that Salesforce did at the tail end of 2020 And it said customer success equals customer outcomes over customer experience. So the experience itself was less important than the customers achieving their outcomes times employee experience and engagement. Now, the single biggest multiplier in all of that is the employee experience and engagement. And if you look at companies that have highly engaged employees, where they feel special, they feel valued, their knowledge is valued, they are valued, they have, on average, a 293% higher profit per employee, 130% higher revenue per employee, 40% lower staff turnover, 20% higher daily productivity, and compound year-on-year share price growth of 316% higher than companies that have average to low levels of employee engagement or even actively disengaged. And so it does not make commercial sense to treat your people like shit. And it makes enormous sense to stop focusing on the balance sheet because short-term thinking only delivers short-term positive results and normally creates (laughs) long-term negative results. Whereas long-term thinking and long-term behavior delivers the short-term positive outcome, but it delivers benefits and interest in spades over the years through retention of staff, retention of customers, repeat business, referral. And how do you do that? Well, you know, we talked about the, the sort of the appraisal process. That's your route in. For me, that's your route in. But again, you've, you've got to dismantle that sort of like the HR department's reliance on the appraisal process as a performance indicator, short-term performance indicator. So for me, if, if I was a manager in an organization, and I have been, the appraisal process for me is an ongoing thing. It's not, you know, well, you haven't had one for six months, so schedule one for six months, schedule one for 12 months. It happens every day. It happens every four weeks. It might happen informally. And you, you build this picture. You build this relationship. You build this ability to recognize 
the the value that people bring to your organization and demonstrate that recognition constantly. It's an ongoing process. You know, you think about that example I, I spoke about before about Boeing and their 747 program and all this. That happened because one part of the business decided we need to shed a load of jobs. We need to shed however many thousand jobs because you know we need to cut costs. Say again, sorry. We need to cut costs. Yeah, yeah. And then they threw the baby out with the bathwater and suddenly thought, geez, where's all our um, production managers or our you know specialist engineers? Well, actually, we've just offered them a nice big fruity redundancy package. And guess what? They took it. <laughs> big surprise. Well, uh, again, this then requires you to look at the age distribution within your organization. Very much so, yeah. Because if you've tended to hire older more seasoned, more experienced people, and you haven't created an apprenticeship where there is knowledge transfer. And in fact, there was a really interesting case. Monsanto had a real problem because their senior chemists would leave because they wanted the cars with the black leather seats and they wanted to turn left on a plane. And they kept putting them into management roles. But they didn't necessarily have the interpersonal skills to be able to do that. And they came up with a really clever solution, which was rather than giving them a management role and title, they'd give them all the perks on the basis that they would mentor five people. Mm -hmm. And so the knowledge was then being passed down over several years to their mentees. And so they didn't end up with that brain drain. And I think Again, when you're planning your business, you need to plan ahead for the business that you're going to become in three, five years' time. Even though the plan may not survive contact with the enemy, you do need to recognize where your people are in their own evolution and make sure that you've got that runway. I mean, one of the things that I'm genuinely concerned about in my profession is that Many of the entry-level sales jobs, I believe, will disappear over the next three to 10 years. And there will not be a place for people to learn the craft. Yeah. And I think what we really need to start thinking about today is developing a proper sales apprenticeship program and even more importantly, a sales management apprenticeship program. Yeah. Because... Just because you're a good producer does not mean you will be a good manager. And I see there there was a study that SRC did in 2020 where only 6% of sales managers were deemed fit for purpose. Now, we've got to the point where 94% are not. Right. And that's truly worrying. I think we also need to look at how we develop our people Because the usual way of doing it is you give them a sheep-dipped one or two or three-day training and you tick the box. And that is not how people learn. Interestingly enough, I ran a round table yesterday and the conclusion was that we should stop calling it training and call it learning. Because learning is an ongoing activity and it's something that you do for yourself and you, you keep. Whereas training is something that is done to you. Yeah. And whilst it's a subtle distinction, I think it's really important. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of a clever way of of, of re, renaming the appraisal or performance review process to reflect exactly that. That because I think the performance and appraisal process is done to an employee when really it should be coming the other way. That's for, for me. I agree. It on its head. Well, I, I think it should be a feedback session where the employee is there talking about their experience and how they are learning and growing and developing yeah. and creating a learning pathway for them over the next 90 days. When uh, I do appraisals, it's done typically every 90 days with ongoing touches in between. But at that 90-day point, we're working on what they're going to do. What are the five big um, targets that, that are within their control through behavior that they're going to work on over the next 90 days? And they may be about learning. They may be about advancing in particular accounts. They may be about developing uh, new habits. But it's important that the gap between the appraisals or reviews is not so long that people basically just put the paperwork in the back of their car and leave it, and not too short. So there's not enough time for them to get their teeth stuck into something meaningful. And I like to break it down into steps of between five and 12 steps. Fewer than five tends to be just brushed off, and more than 12 tends to be uh, overwhelming. And so having those clear behavioral steps and milestones and Interim reviews as well is really important, where both sides are learning. And I think the the aspect of an appraisal which is often missing is parity. Both sides have equal uh, stature in the appraisal, and both are there to learn and to teach. But the problem is, often because it's done top-down and done to, there is no real value that the employee walks away with. And no. the manager doesn't either. It's no. just a, an, yeah, an unpleasant interruption. Yeah. And it's fixed. You know, it's, it's, it's fixed in time. It's fixed in content. And why would you do that? You know, I mean, I know you, you, you do it. If, say, take an analogy with your car. You get MOT'd every year. Every 12 months, you get your car MOT'd. But all of a sudden, if you started hearing something, oh, there's a bit of a rattle there, and, or it's pulling to the left, or, you know, or it won't start in the morning, you'd do something about it, wouldn't you? You know, why wait for your, you wouldn't wait for your MOT to do something about it, about your car perhaps not performing as well as it should do. So why would you do the same with the, with the person? I, in all honesty, without being unduly brutal, I think it's laziness and it's the, the easy option. Yeah, yeah. Because doing the other stuff is hard work. It actually requires planning. It requires the exercise of uh, thought and it requires you to take your eye off the busy work. Yeah. Do the not urgent, but highly important work. Yeah. And yeah, because a, a manager in my book has five functions. Hire the best people. Number one, yeah. if you hire the best people, 95% of your management problems go out the window. Number two is get the best out of them. And that means you serve them. It yeah. means your job is to make yourself available to challenge them, to coach them, to mentor them, to train them, to develop them, and to hold them to account to make sure that their standards of performance are high, that they're doing their best work, that they're being stretched, um, to encourage them to be their best, to make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. And that means you have to go to, uh, you know, go to the crease and fight for them. 
You've got to protect them from acts of idiocy from above. And you have to help them clear roadblocks without creating learned helplessness or upward delegation. And you have to manage inclusively. And I don't care what kind of manager you are. If you do those actions consistently, then what you end up being is a multiplier. You end up being somebody who people want to come and work with. And Google's Project Oxygen was really interesting. The number one quality that defined great managers was do the people in your team encourage people they care about to come and join it? Right, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I recognize quite a lot of those sort of points in in what I think is my own management style and my own management style in, in when I was in the police. And you're absolutely right. I was just thinking back to what you were previously saying, though, about I think the recognizing in time that knowledge might be it might be a threat and um, one of the examples I, I sometimes use is and it, it really resonated with me was um, a headline in the Sunday Times a couple of years ago now which had a picture of um, Philip Glenister and Keely Hawes from the television program uh, Ashes to Ashes I think it was and the headline was met stumped by case of disappearing CID and you mentioned before about you know having like a a, a a cohort that that starts working at a particular time and ages like the engineers at a particular wherever it was and that was the case because about 1974 there were changes in legislation which made the the wage structure for for policing a lot better than it had been previously and so a lot of people joined in the 70s and early 80s and a lot of those people were coming to the end of their service and this article in the Sunday Times reported that the the, the world-famous Metropolitan CID department had been allowed to wither on the vine. And the then, I think, um, Assistant Commissioner for Crime and Operations, Pat Gallen, was had written to every detective due to retire that year, imploring them to stay on and act as mentors to junior officers. And that, for me, is a classic example of, of not not projecting, not thinking, or just ignoring the threat of lost knowledge in a way that is so potentially damaging to to organisation, to its reputation, to its productivity, to its ability to do what its core business is. And it's it's a sin, really. And, and, And I hate it. I hate waste of any description. But waste of knowledge, waste of opportunity... Waste of talent is is just a sin for me. It's pitiful. Yeah. And uh, again, when you think about how much innate knowledge there is, I mean, uh, one of the exercises that I do uh, with the companies that I, I get involved in is developing their customer journey. And what's really fascinating is I've yet to come across one organization that really understands their customer journey. Mm-hmm. Because everybody who exists in a silo not only exists in a silo, but they only see that bit of the journey. And as a result, every time a customer gets passed from one part of the business to the next, it feels disconnected and they normally have to start all over again. Very frustrating. And that's incredibly frustrating and this is where that knowledge is being lost because 
if you don't have that continuity and you don't have early and continuous engagement, and one of the problems I see in sales is the sales function has been broken into sales development reps who do the lead generation, and then they throw it over, well, you've got marketing, and then they throw it over the wall to the sales development reps or the BDRs, business development reps, who then throw it over the wall to sales, who then throw it over the wall to customer success, who then throw it over the wall to the account managers. It's off Um, my desk. (laughs) Absolutely. And you, you end up with this incredible level of frustration and also stuff is forgotten. It's like a game of Chinese whispers because each time that it's passed along, important knowledge is lost along the way. And unless you unify the revenue operation, marketing, lead generation, sales, customer success, account growth, and leadership and management, and make sure that they're all aligned and they're working collaboratively. And in this day and age, if you're not working collaboratively internally and with your partners, with your customers, and even with your competitors, then chances are you're going to lose out big time. And you can collaborate only if you have that infinite mindset. If you don't have that infinite mindset, then you will be protective, defensive. You'll have a blame default setting and excuses. And the other thing that you'll do is you'll play your cards very close to your chest and you get reflected back what you project out. Yeah, and that, that playing your cards close to your chest, being protective, being parochial, is probably one of the biggest risks in knowledge loss, knowledge management. Because you know, people see knowledge as power, they see it as protecting them. You know, I'm the only person that can do this, so I'm safe so long as I don't tell anybody else how to do it. It's a nonsense because unless, as you say, unless you and you you understand that. That journey, unless you understand the end point and what you're trying to achieve, unless you understand, as Max Gates was saying, your purpose, where you're going with all of this, then once you've done your bit and you've, as you say, thrown it over the wall or shifted it off your desk onto somebody else's desk, whoa, thank God that's gone, then there's a gap between the stools and, and knowledge, amongst other things, will fall right, right through it and it's gone. It's so wasteful and you have to start all over again. And the customer is just there thinking, what a shower of shit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting about that, the, the customer journey. I, I, I do another talk about the angelic welcome, the angelic art of welcome. And organizations ask their customers. They ask their customers about their journey. But they never ask the people who didn't become customers. Yeah. And how many people have approached your business, your organization, your shop, whatever it might be, your service, and said, nah, I'm not going to bother because there's something about that very first point of welcome that doesn't appeal to them. And, and no one tries to find out what that is. They only, it is like, um, it, it, it's, it's like that old story, isn't it, about the fellow fella scattering powder and then someone comes up and says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm scattering anti-puma powder, but we don't have any pumas around here. I know it's really good stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's almost, you know, why would you only ask the positive people? Why would you only ask your customers about your customer service? Why not ask the people that you've turned off at the front door? Salesforce did a study called Experience the Shift 
And one of the conclusions they reached was speaking to unhappy customers increased the speed of product development by 600%. Wow. So again, the economics of doing things well requires you to do the difficult work to put yourself in a position of vulnerability where you may be upset, hurt, offended. You may hear things you don't like. And in leadership, in management, vulnerability is your greatest strength. And time and time again, you see brittle leaders and brittle managers who cannot take criticism, who punish people who disagree with them. And they end up essentially getting 50% or less out of their people. Their people leave. They can't wait to leave. The talent goes and you're left with the deadwood. Yeah. And eventually that's a downward spiral. Okay, Peter, this has been really fascinating. I would love to have you back. And I'm thinking of a couple of panels that would be really interesting as roundtables. So if you'd be open to that, that would be fabulous. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm open to anything. I, I, I can't stop talking about this when I get going. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it is a fascinating subject. Absolutely. Okay, so tell me this. You have a golden ticket. And you can go back in time and advise the idiot Peter, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him? Wow. Don't try and fight the organization, for one. Organizations are very big. And if you try and take on an organization that you're part of head on, you'll lose every time. Keep your powder dry. And if you see a conflict that you know is going to be hard work, find a way to deal with it that doesn't involve a head on collision so come at it from the flank yeah find and find a way around the problem rather than through it because that's going to hurt because when, when an organization turns on you as i've had it turn on me they bring all of their resources to bear and that can be a very very difficult fight to win and i suppose the other thing i'd, I'd say is that no one's really going to look after you except yourself so look after yourself and don't rely too heavily on other people because when the chips are down, when the organization does turn on you, if it does, those people will disappear and it will all be down to you. And you've got to have the resilience and you've got to have the knowledge and you've got to have, I suppose, the, the, the self-belief to fight the fight and carry on. Interesting. Very deep, that, not Yeah. I've always tended to take the head-on approach, um, and I can't say I've ever won. Um, (laughs) But I understand why one would take a flanking move or work around it. The one caveat I would have with that, and I'm certain that you didn't mean it in a different way, is that you have to be true to your values. And if you see something wrong, then you have to speak out. I interviewed a chap called Darren Schmuckler, Um, uh, uh, last week and he made a really interesting point which is for real values you have to be willing to sacrifice something for them yeah and that was a a really profound moment for me the realization that you absolutely do because values don't change your beliefs might but your values are they're there and they're pretty much set in stone now if they're challenged you definitely have to be ready to see another point of view and if your values are wrong then to have the courage to reassess yeah but 
if it really is a core value, chances are you have to stand up for it. And that takes an enormous amount of courage. Exactly. And, and, and I think that's perhaps what I was getting at, but probably didn't articulate quite as well as I could have done. There are two things that I'd hate. Waste is one. And as I've described, whether that's knowledge, food, talent, opportunities, whatever. The other thing I hate is injustice. Yeah. When I, I see injustice, I will challenge it. I will fight it with every fiber of my being. But even doing that, there are ways to do it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, take, take on fights you can win. Yeah. There is no shame in retreat if it means absolutely that you can not. fight again. Absolutely none. So tell me this. What would you recommend people read, watch, listen to in the area of recapturing lost knowledge? Uh, well, there's a couple of really good books out there. I mean, in, in terms of developing the culture and the values that would provide the, 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 the sort of the foundation for, for knowledge management, I, I think you could do no better than read that Ricardo Semler book, Maverick, just about challenging the way that you think about your business and the, and the way that you look at it, the hierarchies and the structures. In terms of knowledge loss, the first book I read on it, and I still go back to it time and time again, is a book by a fellow called David DeLong, and I think it's called Lost Knowledge, Challenging the Threat of an Aging Workforce. I think it's, it's that, or it's, it's very similar to, to that. And that is, again, it's, it's probably a little bit dated now, but to tell you the truth, there's not an awful lot that seems to be being currently written about it. There's, there's, a, there's a few books about you know, knowledge management as a, and ways that you can sort of structure your knowledge management. But in terms of lost knowledge, that DeLong book is, is the one that really sparked my, my interest. And there are hundreds of examples that he quotes in there, mainly from big businesses like you know, Boeing and NASA and whoever else. The real thing for me is that Boeing and NASA and Rolls-Royce and all these people are often big enough to be able to take a lost knowledge hit. They can take a thump from it and survive and come back. The real threats are to the smaller businesses, the people who may have you know, 50 to 100 employees, like that my manufacturing friend who's making wiring looms for use in outer space. If they lose knowledge and it has sort of catastrophic impact that they should foresee, that threatens the whole business, and that could be them out of business and 100 people on, on the dole queue. They're the people that, um, that really don't seem to get an awful lot of attention in any of these studies, in any of these surveys. There are two other books I'd strongly recommend. Essentialism by Greg McEwen, and really very, very interesting. Basically, do less but better on purpose right. and work out how through collaboration... Uh, through the capture of a good insight, you can improve and constantly look to improve and refine and cut out the waste, particularly in effort. And also Peter Block wrote a fabulous book, I believe it's only on audio, called The Right Use of Power. And again, for leaders, I'd strongly recommend that. Yeah, I shall have a look at both of them. Excellent. So Peter, how can people get hold of you? Plenty of different ways. LinkedIn, for me, is probably the, the, the best way. You go onto my LinkedIn profile and you'll find all my communication details there, website. My, my website is, is, is for a slightly different discipline of my, my work, which is my after-dinner speaking. But you'll, you'll find contact details, phone, email, 
or you can contact me through LinkedIn. I'm on all the usual social media channels, but they don't tend to be terribly business oriented. That's about it, really. I'm not hard to find. There's not that many Peter Edges out there in either LinkedIn. I'm not a baritone. There's one Peter Edge who's a baritone, I think, on LinkedIn. And, and while I do enjoy a good sing-song in the shower, I, I, I don't peddle myself as a baritone. <laughs> Excellent. Peter Edge, thank you very much. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you'd like to get hold of me, my email address is marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.